Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, is joining me is Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hi again, Dmitry. Uh, good to be back. It's good to have you, man. It's uh, you know what? I think we're both uh, we're both doing better these days than someone like Milan Lucic is. I feel like that's fair to say. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think if I were to compare my paycheck to uh, Milan's yes. paycheck, he might he might have a little bit to gloat about. Listen, Jonathan, there's more to life than just fina- <laughs> financial incentives. Okay, it's uh, it's how 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 fulfilling you feel. You're doing your job. How well how well things are going. You know, it's not just the money. I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> it's easy for me to say that when I'm not making nearly as much as he is. But uh, no, it's um, listen, it's uh. We'll, we'll get to Lutic in a second. I feel like that's the big elephant in the room, but l- let's talk about the Oilers as a whole. I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show because, uh, we've been doing this adoption series in the PDO cast where we pick one team for each show and do a, do a deep dive on them and sort of devote the full episode to them. And while I know that you cover the, the, the league in its entirety and have a pretty good, uh, sort of eye for what's going on with, with each team, I feel like the Oilers are still the, the one that you're paying, paying the closest attention to. Yeah, I uh, I don't get to watch anybody else nearly as much as I I do Edmonton. So, yeah, it should be fun. Well, I think that with the Oilers these days, everything justifiably begins and ends with Connor McDavid. And I mean, there's so many sort of hilariously eye popping stats that you can cite to show his greatness. But when I was putting together some show notes for this, I was looking, and you know, it, obviously it sticks out that he's leading the league right now and, and counting 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 stats like points and assists and primary assists at five on five. Although Crosby is making up some ground and kind of catching up to them, at least in terms of a per game basis. But I mean, the thing that really kind of caught my eye was he has either a goal or a primary assist on, on over 30% of Edmonton's five on five goals this year, which uh, I didn't have a chance to run it for all the other stars in the league, but I feel like that's probably one of the highest rates in the league. I mean, like if you're basically directly responsible for over a third of your team's goals, that's, that's means you're probably doing something pretty well. It's funny you mention that because that is one of those stats that I've been meaning to take a, a deeper dive in. Like you, I know that McDavid is, it seems to me that McDavid has been really dominant there, but I don't have the numbers for all the other players. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's hard to make that head-to-head comparison without doing that look. If we're picking just one number that stands out to me, um, McDavid 
not only does he drive the power play, but but at even strength. I, I look at Cam Talbot's numbers with and without him at five on five. Mm-hmm. When he's on the ice with with Edmonton's starting goaltender in net, the Oilers have. 54% of the core season, 61% of the goals. And when he's off the ice, and again, Edmonton's starting goalie in net, the Oilers have 48% of the core season, 46% of the goals. And it's just, it's such a colossal swing. Um, he he is he is the guy at five on five. He is the only reliable offensive contributor. He's the only really, re- he centers the only really reliable line they have that consistently, you know, outshoots the opposition by a, a significant margin every night. Um, he he just he does everything. If uh, if McDavid isn't on the team, we're talking about the Oilers. I think in in the same way we've been talking about them for years and years, um, going back to the departure of Chris Pronger. Yeah, no, that, I mean that's that's the funny thing, right? Where it, it, it's easy to sort of spin these narratives about how they made certain moves, you know, bringing in a guy like Adam, Adam Larson to, to really stabilize the blue line and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, without McDavid as being the driving force and the guy that's really making everything happen for everyone else, they're still in that same position. And it kind of just like, you know, whenever we're talking about these teams like the Avalanche or the Coyotes or whoever is currently rebuilding and, and trying to kind of find that next wave of talent for their, for their franchise, it pretty much boils down to the fact that like, if you can find uh, a generational superstar like this, cause that could just expedite the entire process by, by, by such a it's, it's such a kind of just snap of the fingers basically yeah that's just it i i kind of laugh a little bit when i see people talk about colorado and and say well they better follow the edmonton model yeah absolutely that's it the edmonton model is great yeah. <laughs> go draft connor mcdavid then trade for some defensive defensemen <laughs> that's a great model yeah. um he it's it's uh it's a unique scenario it's it's like when pittsburgh was was winning stanley cups you'd hear the occasional reference to the Pittsburgh model. You can't take the lessons from, from a team that has a, a generational superstar and apply them to yourself because in, unless you have that player, it, it, it you're not, it, it doesn't work. I mean, even look at like the the Sabers, for example. I mean, you know, they they bought him now for years. They basically tried to do that, and 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 I think we'd agree that Jack Eichel is a fantastic player, and and you know he's ex- exceptional to watch, and he's a great goal scorer. But at the end of the day, like he's not anywhere near McDavid's level at this point of their careers, at least. And if you just took, if you just basically swapped those guys, like I feel it, it's pretty fair to say that the Sabers would be much better than they are right now. It's, it's pretty much as simple as that. Well, and and the effect is exaggerated by the way the league has gone towards parity. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you if you look at the the, the Eastern Conference standings, Buffalo's a, a minus twenty one goal differential team. I, I don't know if if McDavid over Eichel's a, a twenty goal differential jump. It might be. Um, they're only five goals out of the five points out of the playoffs. I, like it's not that big of a big of a leap, and the and the Oilers, as much as they're good this year, you know they're they're great this year. They're a plus eleven team. This isn't a team that is, uh, you know, a, a, a Minnesota or a, a Columbus that's just sort of laying waste to everything around them. They're they're winning. They're they're a good team. They're winning a lot of close games, but the margin between winning and losing is not that large, and and certainly the difference between an Eichel or a, and a McDavid could could have. Uh, 
uh, could have a massive impact on on where the team finishes in the standings. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I was mentioning those 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 stats, McDavid stats earlier, and I think maybe my favorite actually is that uh, he leads the league right now with thirty seven drawn penalties. Um, next best is Nick Nick Ehler is down at twenty eight. And just just for some perspective, I mean, over the past four seasons, no one other than Nazem Kadri's drawn more than than McDavid's already drawn this season, and he still has twenty six games to go. So it's just like it, it's one of those things where I think that the the sort of unique skill above all else that mcdavid has that i think pretty much no one in the league has up to his up to his level at least is the ability to um just kind of stop and start like that because you know i a player that i often rant and rave about online is a guy like andreas athanasiu who i feel like is an exceptional talent and the red wing should be um you know, giving much more opportunities to, and I always rant about just how fast he is and, and how he can go from zero to a hundred basically through the neutral zone and really just create something out of nothing. And I get asked often, you know, how would you compare Athanasius speed to someone like McDavid's? And I think that it's a conversation at least in terms of just like a pure straight line speed level. But if you're talking, especially in the offensive zone with the puck, just kind of these like stop and start fast, twitch in, in small space movements, I mean, McDavid really is in a class of his own and you just see it based on, I mean, how many, how many penalties he has to draw just because defenders have no other recourse other than to just take him down and go into the box and sit for two minutes. Yeah. His speed is, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, it's funny when you mentioned drawn penalties. The first guy that comes to mind to me is is somebody like Dustin Brown, who uh, and and I think we can fairly say this without generating too much controversy that Dustin Brown's pretty good at drawing calls through uh, um, nefarious means. <laughs> nefarious means. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. and and it's a, it's it's complete. And and you know I've I've seen years where he he would lead the league in drawn penalties at five on five or or drawn penalties per hour or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But Connor McDavid, it's not like that. You, I, I, I can't recall seeing. I, I can't recall a single play this year. I mean, there's probably one or two where I saw McDavid go down and thought, well, you know, he he went down a little easier, looking to draw the call there. He's just so fast that he doesn't give defenders an opportunity. They they don't have a choice. Like I, I don't know that I've seen many bad penalties on Connor McDavid this year either. Like sometimes you just have to take the penalty to prevent a, a much better scoring chance and. Uh, I mean, when you watch him live, he just he, he takes your breath away. There's there's he he's just he's an unbelievable skater. Like if when you see him for the first, I remember seeing him for the first time and just going, my God, this guy can skate. He just flies. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Okay, so you know, I, don't, I think the, you know, the first ten minutes we've just been focusing on McDavid, and I think that everyone listening to the show probably already realizes just how good he is and what a what a singular talent he is. So I don't, we haven't really kind of uh, illustrated anything important or, or, or helped teach anyone anything. So let's 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 dive a little a little bit deeper here. I think that the ultimate question with this team is, especially you know, moving forward as we come closer towards the playoffs and potentially a, a playoff run for them is is there enough around McDavid to keep them afloat when he's on the ice when he's not on the ice because as you mentioned uh the splits with him on and off are remarkable and you know one you didn't even mention is uh, they're getting like over 60 percent of scoring chances with him on the ice and it's down to like 43 without him and, and I know that you know you can quibble with scoring chances a little bit just in terms of how they're recorded and sort of the definitions of them and the problems with binning and all of that but I mean when you see a, a difference that big it kind of really helps hammer home the point of just 
the quality of what's going on and, and their ability to do stuff with the puck with him out there versus not. So I think that, you know, we see in the playoffs constantly where, yes, the stars are obviously very important, particularly in getting you there and giving you a position to compete on a nightly basis. But it is generally these kind of guys that come out of the woodwork out of nowhere to, to go on these great runs and, and unexpectedly at least or, or, or play above what they played like in the regular season. And if we look at this roster, is, is there enough around McDavid to make you believe that you know those those 35 to 40 minutes when he won't be playing that they'll be able to at least stay afloat well on paper there is i mean if you imagine if you imagine edmonton taking a, a pittsburgh-like approach we remember Sidney crosby i mean he played a lot with patrick hornquist but but he also had you know connor sheary on his wing um so you can have a sort of a cheaper first line so if you imagine connor mcdavid playing with patrick maroon and some some uh, rental player, I don't know, uh, Redeem Verbata or somebody in that range, mm-hmm. and that's your top line. Then you can imagine a scenario where the Oilers have a Leon Dreisaitl, Milan Lucic anchored scoring line behind him, and a uh, Benoit Pouliot, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Jordan Eberle scoring line behind that. And you go, wow, this is a this is a top nine that can really really compete. This is a team that should be should have the forward depth to to push push um, events and, and and drive into the playoffs. But the problem is that this year those guys just haven't done that. Um, Drysidle's had a good year. Uh, he he spent a lot of time on Connor McDavid's right wing, and and the coaching staff seems to seems to prefer that. They've they've split them up for now, but that seems to be something they they like. Um, but those other guys, your your Eberle, Lucic, Bouliot, Nugent Hopkins. Just haven't produced this year. That that's been sort of the secondary storyline in Edmonton is the struggles of those guys. Pouliot and Nugent Hopkins haven't had the luxury of playing with McDavid. Everlay and Lucic have. Um, I, I think that's part of the reason the, the first two guys have been less successful than the last two guys. But none of those four is playing up to the level of um, ability that we would expect based on years past. And unless they do, it's hard to see how the Oilers get things going in the postseason. Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, that was going to be sort of my next question. I'm glad. Great minds there. You really, uh, you really stole my talking point. But I, I think that from the X's and O's perspective, uh, and it's been the, especially in the postseason, that's that's the fascinating um, wrinkle to all this. Where you know McDavid and Dreisaitl, it's not no surprise both guys are exceptional players. But when they put them together, they've been devastatingly good, and it's pretty much been regardless of who the third guy's been i feel like you or i could probably just lace up some skates and go out there and just and i feel like they'd probably still be relatively equally productive like they're just so insane together but it kind of really limits them especially when the other guys aren't producing like this and you know i think they at least it's good right now for them to at least kind of explore separating them because you know what you're going to get with those two guys together but i think that kind of seeing whether dry who has had some chemistry with lucic can get him going now is should be something a directive for the coaching staff to try and figure out over these next couple couple weeks and months because if you could do that and then you go the McDavid Dreisaitl and then as you mentioned the RNH line down the middle all of a sudden you have this balanced attack where and then even if Mark Latest who's your fourth line center like you don't really have any glaring weaknesses you can basically just roll your lines without any concern of being exposed and and sort of the other team picking apart one particular weakness so I think that that is ultimately going to be the thing that's going to determine how far this team can go moving forward. I'd agree with that. The one thing I'd add with regard to Drysidle on his own line, there's obviously a lot of incentive to do it for the postseason and to to give you sort of that diversified attack. But we're also coming up to a new contract for Leon Drysidle, mm-hmm. and 
before you sign him to that deal, I think you, you really want to know whether or not he can drive his own line. Um, I think he probably can. Last year, he was he was really good with Taylor Hall. This year, he has been good when apart from McDavid. But I'd like to see you know a longer run of that. I, I don't think the Oilers are doing themselves any favors long term by uh, putting Drysaitel on on McDavid's right wing in a contract year and, and sort of robbing themselves of their last opportunity um, before signing his new deal to get a look at what he can do as a center on a supporting line, which is a, a role he's going to have to play for for. Uh, decent stretches going forward even if he does spend a lot of time at right wing right and that, and that was my big sort of point of contention with the flames last year where they never really explored that with sean monahan and they just basically played him with johnny goodrow and they're extremely productive together and and you know you just assume well monahan's scoring a lot of goals he must be good he you know he's young he has his draft pedigree let's give him seven years 45 million dollars and he hasn't really shown at this point in his career that he's capable of driving play by himself and being sort of the the guy that that helps bring along inferior talent around him and you don't really want to wind up being on on the hook for that extensive a contract for a guy that is ultimately sort of more of a complimentary supporting player i mean you you need definitely need those guys but you don't want to be paying a premium just to have them on board it's it's you want to be paying the guys that are actually making those around them significantly better yeah absolutely it's it's all about effective allocation of resources um you, you want as, as much as possible you want to pay complimentary guys cheap rates because you can go out and find those guys anytime um it, it's also I I find the whole conversation interesting in in light of league history over the last decade. Like, you know, since 2010, the most dominant team in the NHL has been the Chicago Blackhawks. And, and they've done it by having Patrick Kane on one line and Jonathan Taves on the other. And we've seen, like, it. it um, Joel Quenneville has played them together at points, but it's always been a short-term boost thing in specific situations. And, and we've seen the way that allows them to get matchups. Um, we've seen the way that have, having a, an offensive winger driving a line is not necessarily uh, impossible either, which is uh, so, something you don't see in a lot of places around the league. There seems to be this tendency to focus only on the centers. I, I don't know why those lessons are not trickling down through all the other teams in the league, but um, they don't seem to be. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like you could say that exact sentence about a lot of different things. Yeah, Chicago. Uh, Chicago does a lot of smart. There's a reason Chicago's been as good as they are. A lot of it has. I mean, a lot of it obviously has to do with the player talent. But but they've been very smart with how, for the, for the most part, they've been very smart with how they've run their team. And and I feel like, um, even though we talk about the NHL being a copycat league all the time, there's still a lot of room for for uh, further emulation. Right. And I mean, listen, they're not. You know, without blame here either, they're not necessarily perfect. Like, I mean, if you look at the Brent Seabrook contract as a great example, it's like that would have been a perfect chance for them to sort of cut bait while they still could. But obviously, they felt some sort of loyalty to him based on everything he'd done for them over the years, and, and, and they rewarded him for it. And listen, I mean, every team does that in some capacity or another. You kind of hope to limit the exposure and sort of the 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 money you're devoting to it but at the end of the day they they still have ultimately done more smart things than 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 not and and that's why they're they are where they're at yeah the the seabrook contract i I think you'd probably get some pushback in in places from from people who really rate what he does as a player still i i think that's a that's a pretty scary deal uh, myself but um, that and the bickle contract are really the only things you can kind of point to as chicago missteps and then you look at sort of the the wealth of talent that um 
Stan Bowman has been willing to cut away from that team guys that he has shipped out over the years and you go wow this is this is this is a ruthless general manager in the best possible sense mm-hmm. um but uh but, but i'm i'm going off on a wild digression here so yeah. <laughs> i'll wrap that up yeah no it's but it's it's a good it's a good segue there because you did write recently like one of the reasons why i want to have you on is cuz you wrote this brilliant piece for for sportsnet about just kind of looking at the the blueprint for the oilers here because you know it, it's very easy to look at how the past decade's gone for them and to be like, well, they haven't appeared in the playoffs at all in the past 10 years. So literally just making there, regardless of whatever happens is a positive and a step in the right direction. And, you know, that's, that's considered a good season for them. But I mean, if you just look at it, like when you, when you're dealing with sort of generational talents like this and, and guys that are producing at such a high rate on their entry level contract, like you really are incentivized with the current cap structure to, Go for it while you can, because I mean, you know, you mentioned Dreisaitl is up for a new deal this year, and McDavid will be the next year. And this year, they're making what, like under two million dollars combined against the cap. And I mean, if you just look ahead to after twenty eighteen, they're going to be like, what's a fair estimate for what that combined cap is going to be for them? Like fifteen, sixteen million dollars? Like it's going to be, it's going to be monstrous compared to what it is now. Yeah, it. it um, I'm curious as to what they do with Dreisaitl because he's he's got. Uh... Uh, his first year in the league, he he burnt the first year of his entry level deal, but he didn't burn the first year of his UFA status. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they do have the option to go on a bridge deal with him, which might uh, change things a little bit. But regardless, there's going to be a you know a massive boost, and and even if you do go on a bridge deal with with Drysaddle, it only buys you so many years before you do have to pay him full price. Right. Um, so yeah, there there's a there, there's kind of a, a twofold way of looking at it, and the one I stressed was the. Uh, the incentive offered by the salary cap and and uh, cost controlled entry level players, you want to strike while the iron's hot with them. Um, the other thing is that when you have a core that is so good, it it's so good at twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three. Mm-hmm. Like if if this is a team that's going to be just killing it when these guys are thirty, at the other end of like I, I think um, most of our most of your listeners will will have seen the charts that. Uh, that Gabriel Desjardins and, and others since have done showing aging curves and, and showing sort of that peak in the, the 25-26 range um, in terms of offensive performance for forwards. So if we imagine that as sort of the peak years, the years where this team is at its most dominant, when Dreisaitl and McDavid are 25-26, well, how they're going to be at 30 is going to correspond a lot to how they are at 22-23. And uh, if um, if this is a team that is going to be good when they're 30, it's it's also a team that should be good when they're twenty two, twenty three. Yeah, and you know I had this same discussion along the same lines at least with with Craig Custance recently about the Leafs, and it's 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 similar in the sense that you know it, it's it's easy just the team's been so bad for so long that now that they're they're good, like it's very easy to just become a little complacent and just you know you just be happy that they're not the laughing stock of the league anymore. But it's it, it is one of those things where you really need like need to do as much as you can while while these guys are so cheap and so productive at that price because we're seeing with you know whether it's a team like Tampa Bay who I know you've also been following pretty closely and written about for Sportsnet as well it's like 
you never you can never take it for granted. It's 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 easy with these young guys to just go like, well, if they're this good right now, just imagine after they get some more years and experience and and tough losses under their belt, how good they're going to be in the years to come. And then there's injuries, there's poor goaltending, there's you know guys just mysteriously falling off and not developing the way you'd think they will. A various a medley of different factors, and you just can't really take for granted that it's going to be this stepwise progression. So if you're already you know, competitive and winning games and, 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 and doing, doing well right now, just, just do your best and you take it to the next level. Otherwise you're kind of doing yourself a disservice as a franchise. Yeah. Life is short and, and we see that all the time with these teams. Um, the New York Islanders, uh, are, uh, are doing better lately with, with Doug Waite behind the bench. But we saw that for, for a few years, they were sort of the young team that everybody was like, Oh yeah, they're going to get better and better and better. And, and they did take the first two steps and then they stalled. And uh, we'll see whether or not they can pull themselves out of out of that and, and build towards greatness. But, you know, John Tavares was a 2009 draft pick. We're, we're at the point where the, the, the young core of that team is not going to get better and, and they're going to have to find other ways to improve. And, and the other thing, I, I'm, I'm glad you put it in the phrase in, um, in the form of sort of a step function, because one of the th- comments I get all the time when I talk about this, I got it on some pieces I wrote last year, too, is, whoa, 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 whoa. The Edmonton Oilers haven't been in the playoffs since 2006. What are you doing even talking about a Stanley Cup? Like, let's let's wait till they get some playoff wins under their belt before you even consider this. But when you look at the great teams, that's not how it works. Um, the Pittsburgh Penguins went to the Stanley Cup final in 2008. In the previous seven years, they had won a single playoff game. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks went to the Western Conference Finals in 2009. In the previous decade, they'd won a single playoff game. Like, it, it doesn't work like that. If, if you're a great team with a young core, it, the, the, it's not a gradual slope. It is a, uh, I can't remember the mathematical term, but it's like a, a logarithmic function where they're exponential. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an exponential curve. They go from zero to a very high level of play very quickly when these things come together. And if you don't see that for a team that's hinged on one or two, you know, like, I mean, obviously more than one or two players, but one or two really great talents driving it, if you don't see that sudden spike, it's very open to question whether or not they're ever going to climb that high. Yeah, yeah. And, like, listen, you look around the the rest of the depth chart and the financial situation, and I feel like this is a a good point for us to to talk about Lucic, who I uh, described as, as the elephant in the room at the start of the show. But I mean, if you just, it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, by my count, the last time he scored a goal at five on five was on, on December 6th against the Sabres. And, uh, the Oilers have played 28 games since then. And, and he has only three five on five assists during that time and, and seven power play points. And it's a tough pill to swallow for them because I, I, I think that, you know, most people were generally united in in the belief that that was a ill-advised contract for them to give the for the Oilers to give him because of sort of the style of player he is, his age, and and the term they were giving and the premium they were paying for a guy like that. But I think that even the biggest detractors of the deal would have admitted that you know you'd figure that they'd at least be able to squeeze out a couple of good productive years here as he enters his early 30s and he's really just fallen off the table immediately which isn't something that i that i really considered with him as an option i mean he he, he'd had been a, a very productive useful player for for so long and hadn't really necessarily shown any signs of of significant deterioration so i feel like this is just 
I don't know. Is it, is it as simple as just kind of just being a weird blip in the radar and we should expect that he'll at least come back to something more closely resembling his career norms? Or is there something here that is like, are there red flags that make, should make us worried moving forward? <laughs> um, I, I did a, I, like you, I was skeptical as to the long-term ramifications of the, the Lucic contract, particularly when you consider what he's likely to look at, look like in year five and what Connor McDavid's likely to look like five years from now. Mm-hmm. But um, when, I, when I did, I, I went in the summer and I pulled up a whole list of people who had you know, played comparably up to that point in their careers. And then I looked at how they performed over the following seven years, and I, I sort of broke the contract down into three periods. The first three years were these, where he was almost certainly going to be good. The middle two years where the risks increased and you didn't really know what was going to happen. Some of them went stayed good, some of them went bad. And then the last two years where there was a real risk of a drop-off. Um, the one guy in the group who, without a serious injury, really fell off the face of the earth at the same age that Lucic is in right now was Dustin Brown. And when I say Dustin Brown, like that, if you're if you're a general manager, that's a name that should send uh, tingles up your spine and and little red flags in your brain t- uh, set off. Um, he never came back, and he had a very when you look, it's eerie when you look at the numbers. He had a very similar year to Milan Lucic at the same age, in that he had a tremendous power play season, one which was dramatically better than he'd done in years past, which is the case with Lucic this year, and his five on five numbers fell through the floor, and and that's. Like when I look at Lucic, I think, okay, this is a guy who should probably be better next year. And particularly um, when you consider it in the context of some of the other guys in Edmonton, in Edmonton who are having bad seasons. Mm-hmm. But then I also think, but what if he's Dustin Brown? And so I do, I, I would worry about him. Man, the, the Dustin Brown, like, it, 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 isn't it mind blowing? You kind of forget just because of how pedestrian he's been the past few years. It's like, you know, for a while there, People love to hate on him, but he was very productive. As we mentioned, he drew a ton of penalties. He was a positive shot differential guy. He was actually a pretty good goal scorer and a very useful player. Even disregarding all the you know intangibles and leadership and him being the captain and all that jazz, just purely based on stuff we could quantify, he was a very, very good NHL player. And then he dropped off badly, and everyone made fun of the contract they gave him and everything like that. But then it's sort of, he just faded into the background, but he's still casually making $7 million this year and, and has five years left on this deal at just under $6 million as a cap hit. Like, it's it's kind of mind-blowing. Like, imagine if right now they just signed him to a five-year, $40 million deal or whatever. Like, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be insane. I'd be like, what the hell are they doing? Well, that's basically what they're facing at this point. Yeah, it's... um when a, and and the uh, the fall off for Brown happened a lot earlier than I think anybody really expected. Like when these guys get to thirty five, you go, yeah, absolutely. You know what are you doing? But but at twenty eight, you don't expect to see a guy just just collapse like that. And and that's why I'm I was a little bit I'm a little bit leery bringing up Brown's name just because I, I do think he's an outlier. Um, and and the contract is just so bad given what he's giving them right now. Well, here's the, here's the but, question I have for you, Jonathan. Like it's. Uh, I know you talked about how you looked at sort of historical comparables for Lucic based on production, but is should when we're having discussions like this about players of this type, should we factor in the style of game they play just in the sense that like, you know, with Dustin Brown, I guess it, it, it's it's kind of easy to just look at it as hindsight now, twenty you know twenty twenty, and it, it's it's a little too convenient, but it's like he played such a you know 
a game that's so tough on the body where you're just constantly flying around all the time, throwing a ton of hits, taking a ton of punishment. And it, it makes sense that the body would eventually just break down, even though he hasn't necessarily missed a lot of games. It's pretty clear that he's not physically the player he used to be, even though he's not that old at this point. Like, you know, Lucic plays a very physical game beyond even all the, all the fighting and stuff like that, just in terms of throwing the body around. And, and it's like, you have to wonder, is that a factor we should be considering? It's kind of tough to quantify, but it's just sort of something you got to keep in the back of your mind. No, it, that, that's a superb question because I wrestled with that um, when I was putting the piece together on, on his sort of expected aging curve, because anecdotally, like when I think about it, if I think about somebody like a, a Ray Whitney type player a finesse guy who um, is good at at not putting his body through a ton of, of you know physical damage as much as you can at the NHL level. Mm-hmm. And I think about a guy like Lucic who really thrives on that power game. Yeah, it makes sense to me that Lucic would break down a lot earlier. But it, it doing it that way, I, I think the risk is that uh, that you get kind of a few examples like Dustin Brown who come to mind, and you forget about guys like. Scott Hartnell, mm-hmm. who you know is 34 and still producing at a very high level, and has I don't know like 15 seasons with 100 plus penalty minutes in the right. league. So, so some of these guys can obviously you know overcome the uh, the the rigors of the game that they play and and still be effective as they get older. But I, I do think it's a legitimate um, area of concern is when you have a power player who's who's going to be um, you know engaged in so much physical play as just a regular part of his game you do have to worry about him breaking down a little bit earlier yeah and it's it's one of those things where you know i think it was a game a few weeks ago he had this epic sequence against the uh the predators where he basically just like destroyed austin austin watson with one of the just like cleanest most thunderous hits you're gonna see in today's nhl and then wound up drawing a retaliatory penalty for it and then scored the the power play goal that sent the game to overtime and i'm sure like you know peter shirelli is watching that thinking like yeah this is what i pay this guy for like he, how he can just change the game like this physically but it's like we we, we just haven't seen many signs of life with him this year i mean he's been like he's been better with with mcdavid i mean everyone's gonna be better with him but even like maroon has just been so vastly outperforming him in his minutes with mcdavid that it just like makes you wonder what's going on here whether whether it is something deeper or whether it's just one of these aberrations and he's going to eventually wind up coming back to to what we'd expect from him yeah um it's funny that like that play and and there was some comment in edmonton at the time because I know exactly the play you're talking about. Um, there was some comment in Edmonton at the time that maybe this was sort of the thing that would, you know, spark Lucic, get him going. And then there wasn't really any build on it. And some of that might have to do with Edmonton's schedule. But the further away we get from from that instance, the more it looks like one of those isolated... Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a famous story in the in the blogosphere in, in Edmonton about uh, a Brad Isbister game on Hockey Night in Canada where Brad Isbister was just... <laughs> just superb and he was this physical force and i can't remember how many points he had but but it was and and brad is is famously one of these players who never lived up to the, the the extreme potential that was expected of him from his best moments um so the further away we get from lucic not that you know he's anywhere in brad is <laughs> category just not no i'm not comparing the two but the further away we get from that the more it's like Okay, so he had the moment, but it's it's not it's he's it's not uh, it's not going to spark a comeback. And and um, the further away we get from that, the more it's like, okay, this is a lost season. And the question becomes less: how can he salvage this season 
and more. How can he, he make sure that this is a one-off and not the, the new normal? Yeah. Well, no, especially since like the Oilers are in this for the long haul with him. I mean, the other thing to, to factor in here is that his contract is, is base is like just with all the signing bonuses and stuff, it, 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 it's brutal. It's uh it's very lockout proof and it's very, it's going to be tough to finagle around. So like they, they better hope that, uh, this isn't the, you know, the Dustin Brown style, uh, turn of events. And I don't know, man, you just, you just mentioning Brad Isbister in the same breath as Milan Lucic has me, uh, has me a bit worried. Well, well, no, don't, don't, please don't read too much into that. That was a, uh, he, he is not remotely a comparable to Brad yeah, no, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you. Um, well, let's, uh, let, let's, let's shift gears here a little bit. And I think the other big aspect we have to discuss when uh, looking at this season for the Oilers is, is what's happening in net because, you know, for years it was a wasteland where, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say that. It's unfair to how well Devin Dubnik was playing for a few years there, particularly at 5-on-5 five five where uh, maybe his his overall sort of box score goalie counting stats just weren't there because the team in front of him wasn't very good and, and the, you know, the, the, the penalty kill numbers weren't great, but I mean, he was a, a fantastic, well above league average goalie for a few years there so other than him though i mean it's 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 been a struggle and they've been constantly sort of looking for a guy to step in and be reliable and now that they've found one it's funny i think that the, the next logical question is like are they kind of abusing him a bit too much because can talbot's <laughs> on pace for 73 games and i mean if you look at the list of guys that have done that in recent years it's 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 very small i mean it 11 times total it's been done since 2005 which just goes to show you like and a lot of those were in in 2005 2006 with guys like broder and kepersov and nabokov so it's like we've seen it very infrequently as teams have started to shift towards resting their goalies more not having them play both legs of a back-to-back kind of settling in that smooth 60 to 65 range and on the one hand I understand why they want to do it just because, you know, Cam Talbot's been playing so well for them. It's very easy to just talk yourself into being reliant upon him and, and just figuring out, you know, let's play him as much as we can here and he'll have plenty of time to rest in the off season. But I mean, at some point you do reach kind of a point of diminishing returns. And I think it, it's, it's, it was very negligent of them to, to go into the year thinking that a guy like Jonas Gustafsson, despite years of contradictory evidence uh would be a good enough stopgap for him i mean it just seems like it was very poorly thought out and now they're stuck with just basically keep playing cam talbot every night and hoping that he doesn't completely fall apart okay so there's a lot there i want to touch really quickly on dubnik before i get into talbot um just because he he kind of uh we can relate him a little bit to the conversation we've been having about lucic and and to a lesser extent everlay nugent hopkins and pouliot um Dubnik was a very good goalie for three full seasons for the Oilers, including uh, the 2012-2013 season as a starter. He had a bad year in 2013-14, got sent away from Matt Hendricks, and uh, you know is is now a, a Vezina caliber goalie with Minnesota. But it, he did have a bad year. Like he had a the, the year he got traded, everything went wrong, and and it's just it's it's kind of a good reminder with with all of these guys. Um, just to just to keep in mind that players do have off years, and um, it's not necessarily going to be indicative of what's going forward. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it it, it is a blip on the radar. Uh, okay, so <laughs> that was my Dubnik thing. I wanted to get out of the way. Um, Talbot's in a very interesting position. I, I think particularly playing in Edmonton, 
Um, it's a lot different for a guy like Talbot to do it. Uh, Ray Ferraro made this point the other day, and I think it's totally valid. It's a lot different for a guy like Talbot to play 70 games than it is for a guy like Martin Brodeur. Mm-hmm. Um, so many teams within such a, a narrow travel window and basically three different home arenas. And uh, it, it, the travel schedule, I think, has a, a pretty big impact on, on goalie rest. Uh, this year, Talbot has played better the more he has played. And I think that's kind of played into them. Uh, dressing them as much, dressing him as much as they have, just because you know he thrives on three games in a row, four games in a row, five games in a row, or at least he has this season, and and so you don't really want to um, end that streak when he seems to be doing so well with more work. I think the Oilers are in a very difficult position, and it, it is of their own doing because uh, Jonas Gustafsson was such a poor. Uh, choice for backup goalie and such an obviously poor choice for backup goalie. Um, Peter Shirelli has a history of, of cap savings in the backup goalie position, but as a rule, he's gone with guys like Anton Hadobin, who was a, a very good backup for him. Um, I'm trying to remember who else he had in Boston, but he, he's had cheap backups, but a lot of times they've been also really good backups. Chad Johnson. And Chad Johnson, another, yeah, Chad Johnson's another great example of that. Um, whereas Jonas Gustafsson is only half of that. He's very cheap. He is not good. We know he's not good. <laughs> right. Um, I think they could play the guy they have in net right now more. Um, Laurent Brassois has had several very good seasons at the American League level. He wasn't having a great year before they brought him up, but he needs to clear waivers next year. I, I'm not a big believer in the value of the uh, the young waiver eligible goalie. Like I, I was kind of scratching my head watching what the Islanders did this year with uh, Jean-Francois Berube. I, I just figured wave him. You've got two good goalies under contract. So who cares if he gets claimed? But um, having said that, Brassois is a guy who is cheap. He's signed for next year. The AHL numbers suggest this may be a player and you might as well find out what he can do at the NHL level. He's, he's a reasonable bet for a backup goaltender. There's no reason not to play him. Um, the Oilers are not life and death for the postseason. Like I know when you look at the standings, it can seem that way sometimes, but when you really break it down, the records that a team like uh, a Calgary or a Vancouver would have to do to overtake the Oilers, it's it's not feasible. And and certainly, it's not so close that giving Laurent Brassois two extra games over the final 20 here is going to be um, decisive. Right. So I, I think they're in a position where they're they're well enough. They're they're ahead enough in the standings that they can play the backup goalie. Um, they have a guy who is a reasonable bet as a backup goalie. But one of the things with Todd McClellan this season is he has been incredibly reluctant to trust certain players that are brought up from the American League. Um, Taylor Beck is a is a guy who has played in the NHL before. He was leading the AHL in scoring at the time of his recall, and he basically got five shifts to show whether or not he could play in the NHL and he didn't prove it decisively. And he was thrown to the sidelines <laughs> the rest of the way. Um, yes, he played was healthy, scratched repeatedly um, and couldn't when he, when he did play would only play a few minutes. And, and now he's finally playing a bunch of minutes in the American league. And I feel like it's the same situation playing out in net where um, McClellan has one guy that he absolutely knows will win hockey games for him. And he's very reluctant to give um, an unproven guy like Brassois a chance in net, even though I, I think the, the way things are set up, it, it is in the Oilers' interests to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just like simple little things, like uh, I think it was a week or two ago where, you know, they played an, again a game in 
Nashville, I believe. And then the next night they were playing in Carolina. And I feel like that would have been a very logical spot to play a guy like Brossois. I don't, I don't think that you're necessarily worried about the Canes putting a, putting a five or six spot on you, regardless <laughs> of who's in net. So it's like, it's one of those things where you could, you could, you could steal some, some rest days for, for a guy like Cam Talbot there where, you know, he can still be your workhorse, but you don't necessarily need to just completely ride him in there into the ground. Like, I feel like that's a bit unnecessary. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing, um, that deserves mention there too is there was a uh, that was the second in a stretch of three games in, in four nights. Mm-hmm. The fourth game was an afternoon game in Montreal. Cam uh, Talbot was brilliant. He played all four of those games, or sorry, all three of those games, and he was he was great against Montreal. He had a shutout. I, I was I was very surprised because he was playing so much, and and you would think that at some point the the but but I guess coming out of the All Star break it. it it um, does open up some possibilities. I, I don't think they're going to have the same luxury through March. Um, the last half of the year, their schedule just gets crazy compacted, and they're going to have to find some places to play the backup goalie. Yeah. And I, I think that if you're if you're going to have to do that in March, why not give them a couple of games in February so that the coach can be confident in him? And if he's not, you can bring somebody in at the trade deadline for a you know a third or a fourth round pick, just so that the coach has a guy that he's willing to play. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, okay, a few final questions before we uh, before we get out of here. So, huh, are you prepared for the situation where the Oilers trade away a guy like Brandon Davidson just because they want to make sure they're able to keep Chris Russell this summer? <laughs> well, uh, I, we almost made it through a whole podcast without mentioning the, the yeah, name of Chris Russell. It's like 45 minutes almost. I'm very proud of this. Um, I- I actually think the situation is even, even more complex than that. I think they could trade away Brandon Davidson and still have to move Chris Russell. Um, they've, they've got a lot of, of, a lot of decent left-shot defensemen. I'm actually uh, fine with... I like Davidson. I think he can play. I, I suspect he may be a, a decent second-pairing guy down the line. And um, I'd be very interested in acquiring him if I was a, a team that needed that player. When you look at the left side, they've got Andre Sekra locked up long term. They've got Oscar Clefbaum locked up long term, and they've got Darnell Nurse on the third pairing. Who, you know, he's going to be coming back off the injury list very shortly. Here, when when you look at that, you go, "Well, where does Brandon Davidson play long term?" And uh, maybe you can make a case that they should trade a, a Clefbaum or a Nurse for a more impact player. But uh, the safe route there, I think, is is obviously to trade Davidson, who would seem to be the least of those three guys. In terms of career prospects, yeah. Um, but that still, and that still leaves you with a position where maybe you to get it, if you don't trade Chris Russell, if you keep him and sign him long term this summer, there's absolutely no room to bring in an upgrade on the right side. And I think they need a puck moving defenseman who can handle power play minutes and uh, and spur the offense from the defensive zone. I, I think they need one of those guys. And if they don't, if they re-sign Russell, I don't see where there's room for one. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Davidson. I know that uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will remember that la- last year, early in the season, I uh, I made jokes. I was like trying to figure out whether Brandon Davidson was, was a real person or not because I hadn't heard about him <laughs> and, 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 and stuff like that. But he's like he's legitimately good and very useful, and many teams could use a guy like that on their third pairing. And I think that. You know, it, it's it's you made that joke about how we'd gone so long without talking about Russell, and I think it's it's kind of enlightening that we had gone so long without really talking about anyone on this blue line because for such a long time there, the first talking point whenever you the Oilers would come up in a conversation would be what you know what's going on with their blue line, how can they fix it, what can they do there, and we're at the point right now where you know I'm I'm pretty much like 
perfectly content with it. I mean, obviously, it's not perfect. As you mentioned, they could desperately use a guy with maybe a bit more skill to be on their on their power play and really kind of push the pace offensively for them. But overall, there aren't too many liabilities. It's a pretty solid group overall. And considering where they've been in the past, that's that's a massive improvement. So I think that, you know, it, it definitely could be worse. Yeah, it could certainly be worse. Uh, the question with the blue line, and, and this fits into what we discussed earlier about that um, that need to get better in a hurry. If you're, if you're going to be a great team, you generally win a Stanley Cup fairly early on in your superstars NHL career, or at least if you don't win a Stanley Cup, you at least uh, are a contender pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the Oilers blue line, that's my question is whether it's it's certainly good enough for an average NHL team. Like if you're an average playoff team, you look at that blue line. Yeah, that's fine. If you're if you're trying to be a contender, I'm skeptical that it's good enough. And uh, it's it's a by committee group. I I really like Oscar Clefbaum. Um, he does pretty much everything well. He he's still he's still a little bit gaff prone. And I and I kind of feel like and I saw this at the AHL level too, where. It took him a while at that level for his brain to catch up to the speed of the game, and then it did, and he was really good. And I feel like at the NHL level, once he gets some more games in, because he has been, he doesn't have very many games played under his belt. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like once he gets that experience, he'll he'll process the game better, and then we'll really see what he can do. Um, we can quibble about the price for Adam Larson, the, the trading price for Adam Larson. I didn't like the trade at the time. I don't like the trade now. He's still a very good player, a very good defensive defenseman. Um, he, he's somewhat one-dimensional with the puck but so what everything else he does is so good that he's an extremely valuable piece i like nurse's progression this year andre sacra has been sort of their every man he's a very good player i I think he's a solid number two defenseman on pretty much on just about any team in the league just because he can and and one of the great things about him is he can play with any kind of player he's got a very well-rounded varied skill set he can play with a puck mover and and do a more defensive role he can play with a defensive guy and, and be a little bit more creative offensively and and Russell has been Russell has been fine. Um, I, I think he's if he's your number four defenseman, you're you're not too badly off. I, I think ideally he's a he's a third pair guy who plays a lot on special teams. But you know he, he's he's been fine. But they they don't what they don't have is the guy who really takes charge of the game. They don't have a, a player who can drive things. And I'm, I'm skeptical. I like Clefbaum a lot, and I, I I like Nurse's progression. But I'm skeptical that either of those guys evolves into that player and i don't know if you can win with a by committee approach to defense and, and the oilers forward group man can you imagine kevin shankirk on this team i think i think <laughs> do you, do you want to hear my my crazy wild out there scenario that i'd love to see the oilers try always okay i'd love to see them trade brandon davidson mm-hmm. and chris russell at the deadline and then go out and get shattenkirk as a rental yeah, because you you move you move Russell, you open up a spot, and you bring in some futures. The Oilers don't have a second round pick this year; it's going to go to Boston. So you need those futures, and and the the futures you get for Davidson Russell should be pretty close in value to the futures you're going to pay out for a Kevin Shattenkirk rental. So do it. See what this team can do with an elite right shot defenseman like a and, and Shattenkirk is an elite offensive defenseman. Yep, and I think he'd be a great complement to to, uh, to Adam Larson on the right side. I think you have one pair with Larson, one pair with Shattenkirk. You're in really good shape and I, I just i would love to see what this team could do with a guy like that and i think they're in a position where they can do it without really over mortgaging the future i think it's a very reasonable gamble if you you trade away those two defensemen who are probably on the outs anyway and and give uh, take shattenkirk for a spin and if things go really well maybe you can convince them to sign long term yeah 
No, I think that uh, that's a very interesting proposition. I mean, you're not really, you know, like I, it, it, it's kind of a tough belt to swallow if you're like really mortgaging the future for a guy like that just for a couple months. But like, if you, if that's all that's going to take to to get him, then I think it's uh it's kind of a no brainer just based on on the potential potential return and reward for it. Um, yeah, my final question for you was going to be, what do you, what do you you know, we're two weeks away from the trade deadline. What are you looking for? But I guess uh, that is your uh, that is your, your best case scenario in, in terms of what you'd like to see. I guess. Well, that's that's the uh, the swing for the fences uh, scenario, and I, I think it's extreme, exceedingly unlikely. It's it's something I'd I'd love to see, and I, I think it would be really telling as to what the Oilers are. But uh, sort of what I expect to see is a depth acquisition or two, maybe a, a third, fourth line forward, ideally a right shot guy who uh, can take face offs. And a uh, maybe a backup goalie. I've never heard a better sort of summation of what the NHL trade line experience is like than you going from. What would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see them pull off three separate trades and, and bring in <laughs> and bring in Kevin Shattenkirk to. Okay, but what do you think is going to happen? Well, they'll bring in a depth forward. Like I feel like the, <laughs> the drop off from there in terms of just the excitement level really just took a massive hit. Well, that's this is uh, this is the secret to why trade rumors are so popular, even even though there's uh, very little trade excitement in real life as a rule. It's the possibilities are are endless and uh, enjoyable to play with, but the the reality is generally okay. Redeem Verbata for a third round pick. Yeah, well, I, and I have I have no idea what to expect from this year's trade line because generally that is definitely the, the case. I mean, last year we kept waiting for something to happen and, and then nothing happened like the, the chris russell trade for yurki yokipaka and a conditional yeah. second round pick was like the the, the most like, exciting thing that happened and i guess like the mikhail barker trade too but it was like it was a very dry trade deadline and i think that part of that has to do with uh a point i've really been hammering home lately about how the the point structure right now is kind of increasing this artificial parity, which the league loves, of course, because then, you know, their teams and their owners can sell to their fans that their team is still in it heading into the trade deadline. And it's, you know, exciting times. You should come to the games because we're only a few points out. But then that just kind of creates this gridlock in the middle of the standings where a lot of teams just don't really know what, how, they don't really know how to approach the trade deadline. They can't decide whether they're actually good or not. And they just wind up doing the worst thing possible, which is just standing pat. And, um, so there's that, but then I think that this upcoming expansion draft really throws an interesting potential monkey wrench in there because there are there might be a lot of these deals where teams are worried about losing a guy for nothing or other teams have some spaces where they can pick up a guy for a discounted rate and protect him, whereas his initial team can't. So we might see some, some movement there, and, and that kind of opens the door for an interesting set of possibilities. But as you mentioned, I mean, just based on, on, on the track record, that probably will wind up to being a whole lot of this discussion but not much actual action yeah it, it's going to be a fascinating summer and i think we'll see a lot of action this summer i don't know how much we're going to actually see at the trade deadline it's it's so difficult and and you pointing out this false parity I, I think is is really important if you're a general manager um uh, maybe one of the most important things you have to do is be able to differentiate between actually being in the race and not really being in the race and then convince ownership that you're not in the race and in the long term the best thing to do is sell mm-hmm. I, I think of a team like vancouver that you know right now they're four points out but realistically they've got almost no shot of making the playoffs right and you know if, if you can convince ownership of that 
maybe you can do something crazy like you know retain money on the Sedines and and ship them to LA and bring back Matt Green and Teddy Purcell and Tom Gilbert and you know make the money work with by bringing on all this garbage and uh, at the same time adding a bunch of futures to your team and and really give yourself a kickstart. Whereas what you know this false parity lets you do is keep players like that and slowly run them down to zero and find yourself three years from now four points out of the playoffs 50 games into the year wondering if you can make it again i think it just encourages these sort of self-defeating um management strategies right and and, and that, that's that's the thing right where it's like from an entertainer perspective it's it's kind of a bummer because it really ruins uh the potential for the product but at the same time uh one of my favorite things in pro sports is is anything that sort of rewards teams for doing a good job and for being ahead of the curve and being able to critically analyze stuff and act upon it and this is this is a perfect example of that where there's very few teams that are true sellers. Like even a team like the Red Wings, who is not good at all and is like definitively <laughs> a bottom five team that has no business entertaining a playoff run because of their the situation of their franchise. They might not be buyers like they have been in years past, but it's conceivable that they won't near, be nearly as aggressive as sellers as they really realistically should based on the current state of their roster. And that leaves a massive imbalance between supply and demand. And, you know, like Elliot Friedman, for example, today he put out a, a thir- his 30 thoughts, which everyone should obviously read, read always. But there was some interesting stuff in there about sort of how it's a weaker draft than it's been in years past and how that might encourage teams to potentially give up first round picks more than they've been willing to in the past and like you know a guy like brian boyle is being floated around as the asking price a realistic asking price of that being a first round pick and like how can you look at that as a team like the canucks or the red wings or or one of these teams that's kind of stuck in that middle region and not think wow like we could really just clean up here by getting a couple of very useful picks for guys that ultimately won't factor into our long-term plans so like if you're able to get ahead of the curve like that there's a massive reward waiting for you absolutely um i uh the the toronto maple leafs are a team that has the last few like you look at where toronto is now and this this sudden emergence of them as a as a playoff threat and uh and i look back at the re they had a very short rebuild by NHL standards. But one of the things they did was they kind of went against conventional wisdom. And, and partly being in a big market helped them do it. But they signed a whole bunch of cheap veterans every offseason, which is something rebuilding teams generally don't do. No, no, we want to play the kids. The Maple Leafs didn't really do that. They brought in a whole bunch of cheap veterans. And then at the trade deadline, they had a whole bunch of cheap veterans that they could trade away for just you know a zillion draft picks or prospects or whatever. And, and it, was an, it was an extremely good strategy. And I think it only worked because so few teams actually sell at the trade deadline. You wouldn't be able to command you know, a, a second-round pick for this run-of-the-mill third-line veteran if more teams were cognizant of the fact that they aren't good and aren't likely to be good in the immediate future. Detroit is a great example. There's absolutely no reason for them not to sell every, everything that's not nailed down and not in in, going to be useful three years from now. Um, and... and Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a silver lining of false parity. Is it? Is it does create room for teams that are a little bit smarter, a little bit better run to to create separation between themselves and and the NHL's uh, less. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a word. <laughs> the, the the NHL's less well run franchises. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I know. I know what you're saying. Yeah. It's 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 interesting. You know for. It's 
I guess we'll see how the next couple of weeks go in the summer, but there is, it's a, it's a land of opportunity, my friend. It's uh if you play it right, there's a good things will come your way. Um, Jonathan, man, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat. That was a lot of fun. Um, I stretched you out there for an hour. I don't, I don't usually do podcasts as long, but, uh, there was just so much good stuff to get into with you. And every time I have you on the phone, I, I, I gotta, I gotta talk your ear off a little bit. Hey, well, I, I, uh, I always really enjoy these conversations and, um, you know, if, if next time we go the whole hour without talking about Chris Russell, I'll, I, I think I'll have to send you like a, a gold star or something because we, we came so close. I was so proud of us. Uh, <laughs> we almost made it. Dare to dream. Dare to dream. Um, yeah, let's, uh, you know what? Let's, uh, let's make a preliminary plan. Let's get you back on sometime like right after the trade deadline and we can just sort of, uh, kind of pick up this conversation because I feel like, you know, we just spent like 10 minutes on, on this stuff, but I feel like it really just could have been an entire podcast on its own. I, I, uh, I look forward to analyzing every, all three fourth round picks for, for, for third, fourth line forward type trades with you after the trade death. All right. Looking forward to it, man. Have a good one. Yeah. Take care. The hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypdocast.